I'd like you to turn to Malachi chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 6 and go to the end of chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you about my friend Nick. Many years ago at another church, uh, we had a, a guy that went to church with us named Nick. He was profoundly handicapped. Uh, the church we were in uh, had a lot of revivals. There were uh, prophetic services. There were healing services. There were a variety of opportunities to come together. And every time there was a healing service, Nick would go. And he'd go forward for prayer. And they would pray over him. And Nick would come down after the prayer. And nothing will have changed. And, and he would be disappointed. And um, so we had... Uh, one year we had this guy from Australia come in, and uh, he was a pretty dynamic speaker, and he had uh, scheduled a healing service for Friday night, and on Friday night he started the healing prayers, and uh, things were happening, and there, there was a lot of praising God, and so on and so forth. I'm sitting next to Nick, and he said, I'm going to go forward, and I'm thinking, oh, Lord, please help my brother here, and so Nick went forward, and he stood in front of these prayer team, and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they started shouting and hollering and pointing and and there was a whole lot going on for about 20 minutes or so and and Nick came down off the stage and sat down and nothing had changed physically and when the service was over I put my arm around him and said Nick I'm so sorry he said I'm fine and I went really I'm sorry you know because I knew he'd been disappointed before he said no God did something John I said, what did he do? He said, I don't know, but I'm fine. He said, nothing on my body has changed, but I'm fine. I think God has given me the capability to live the way I am. So, our, our sermon this morning is about healing. The, the title of the sermon is it's healing, healing in its wings, okay? And so, I, 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 this is the, the last of our our, our passages in Malachi, uh, we, we, uh, we, we've looked at this and there's been flow to the book. The first week there were two types of people, the people of God's favor and the people of God's fury. Uh, the second week we found out that that kind of started the book because the priests were uh, neglecting God. They were taking him for granted. They, and it was showing up in their worship, it was showing up in their sacrifices and and uh, the, their sacrifices were polluted. In the third week, we found the consequences that the priests were going to suffer for putting God on the back shelf. And it was a warning. It was a caution. It wasn't a condemnation. He was giving the priests an opportunity to repent. And uh, we should do well to take that into consideration. It's a caution for us as well, because uh, under the New Covenant, under the New Testament, we find out that we are a nation of priests. We're a royal priesthood, and so uh, one of our obligations as priests, all of us have a ministry, all of us play a part of the ministry. We just watch that play out down at Eva Walker Park uh, Friday night. Um, when we begin working together, uh, God is glorified, we are edified, we're nourished, but one of the things that we're supposed to do is make sure that God remains a high priority in our lives so that we can show the world that's what it looks like. So in the, in the fourth week, we, we looked at the family in Malachi's time, and that was important uh, because this, the, the whole book is about God's relationship with his people, and we find out that the family is a reflection 
of God's relationship with his people. And if the family is healthy, then it reflects a healthy relationship between God and his people. These people were dropping the ball. These people were backsliding, we would call it today. Uh, these people were not giving God their very best. They did not have him as highest priority. And it was a bad reflection on God. These people were not being faithful. And God is faithful. So last week we heard that it's important to these people in Malachi's time to understand all this. It's important for them to repent because the Lord is coming. He's sending a messenger. There's going to be a forerunner before the Messiah comes. And God wants them to have the opportunity to repent before the Messiah gets here. Uh, And so it's the same type of message that we have, the same type of urgency we should have. There are a few differences. We'll talk about them later. Uh, But that we should have an urgency to share the gospel before the Lord returns again. So this week, we're going to find out that the Lord's coming will bring with it the ultimate healing for all those who believe. And here's our truth for today. All believers will be healed. All believers will be healed. So that's a promise we have from God, and I'm going to show you how this relates to our brother Nick. So the passage breaks up into three sections. There are three infractions, three things that these people are doing. God kind of sums it up uh, in their relationship with him that are an offense to him. There's one promise, and then there are two responses to everything that God says in Malachi. So it would help us to understand exactly what's going on so that we understand what the infractions are. So these people are in Jerusalem. Uh, They've been sent back from Babylon. Of course, the long history is that the Assyrians have carried the northern kingdom away. The Babylonians carried the southern kingdom away. They took them all to Babylon. Persia rises up. There is a a king of Persia named Cyrus who sends some of the people back to Jerusalem. Not all of them go. We know that not all of them go because the book of Esther tells us about the people that stayed. They're godly people too. But the people that went back have rebuilt the city. They rebuilt the walls. They reallocated the land. The temple is built and everything looks pretty good except the situation has changed but not dramatically. So, they are still under Persian rule. They're still oppressed by the Persians. Not as much as with the Babylonians, but they're still oppressed. Persia is trying to expand its empire. Taxes are very, very high. And to top all of that, they're not only under Persian rule, but they're also under the authority of Samaria. And if you know the history of the Jews in Samaria, you know that that would be a fairly tense relationship. So, on top of all that, there's been an extended drought. And there's not a famine yet, but there's not a whole lot of food to go along. It's an agrarian culture, and they depend on rain to grow their crops. There's no rain. So, these people are struggling. They're having a hard time. There's very little money to go around. There's no money to grow their own food. They have this oppression from the Persians and from the Sumerians. And they're, they're, having a, they're, they're just having a hard time. So they've been blessed. They're returned to Jerusalem, but their struggles are not over. And so God says, I'm sending a messenger. You, you need to be, repent. And then he says this in verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Now, there's a theological term to this. It's called the immutability of God. But basically what it means is that 
God doesn't change. And, and when we say God doesn't change, we've got to be careful with these terms. Uh, because we find places in Scripture where God will relent. We find places in Scripture where if we were to describe it, it would look like God is changing his mind. Okay, When it says God doesn't change, basically what it's referring to is that God's nature doesn't change. The fundamental elements of God's nature never change. And the most fundamental element of God's nature is that he will forgive those who repent and he will discipline those who reject him. So that's what we're referring to when we hear God doesn't change. Now listen carefully. When we see God relenting, when we see him looking like he's changing his mind, we've got to be really careful with that because we have a tendency to give God human attributes and he's not human. So when God relents, it's not like God was sitting in heaven and going, well, Abraham, you've convinced me I've changed my mind. I'll do something different. When God changes his mind, it's not him going, I didn't anticipate this. I'm going to have to come up with another plan. And it's certainly not God sitting in heaven and saying, Oh, wait a minute, i got a better idea. Okay, so this is not the character and nature of God. So God says things about himself. He says, I'm not a man that I would change my mind. But there are times when he relents. Somehow, all of this works out according to God's perfect plan. And God says to the Jews in Malachi's time, it's a good thing for you, for I, the Lord, do not change. And the reason he's saying that to them, he said, therefore you, O children of Jacob, so he says, I don't change, you children of Jacob. Look, he doesn't call them Israel. Now, if you remember the story of Jacob, Jacob was a pretty nasty guy. He was a manipulator, he was a liar, he was a deceiver, he cheated his brother out of the birthright. Neither one of them were any good, to be honest with you, okay? And, then, and so he's calling his people Jacob as a reminder that they have kind of fallen off the wagon here. They've lost the bubble on their worship of God. They've lost him as their highest priority. So it's, for, you, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. He says, if I were the type of God who would change, I would relent on my promises to you. I would be unfaithful to the things I told you I would do, and you would be consumed. So they should be thankful that God is faithful and God is true. Yet, we delineate three infractions that they have committed against God here. The first one it starts in verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So, from the days of their fathers, they have not obeyed what God told them to do. They've been disobedient. They've been unfaithful. He's saying, it's not just you. This has been going on for generations. And God urges them, again, he gives them this opportunity. He urges them to repent. He says, return to me, and I will return to you. Now, the way the Jew would hear this, it's a time for repentance. It's a time for renewal. It's a time for renewed blessings. I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts, but you say, and so God says, repent. You've been doing this for a long time, and the whole rest of the letter is, you're in trouble. You, you are offending me, and so repent, and, and they say, says the Lord of hosts, but you say, how shall we return? Now, this isn't a question. 
It's not them going, okay, tell us what to do to repent. It's them going, what do you mean repent? What do you mean return? We haven't gone anywhere. We're still the same people we were before. We're doing all the same things we did before. You're the one who's falling down on the case here. You're calling for us to repent? Maybe you need to think about repenting. This is an accusation. This is sloughing off the word of God. It's a declaration of their own innocence. Return? Return from what? Have you seen the way we live? Have you seen what we're going through? Absolute disregard. So the first infraction is that they have not kept the law. The first infraction is that they've been disobedient. So infraction number two says, From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, not kept them, says the Lord of hosts. But how shall we return? And then he says, Will a man rob God? Now, that, that, that phrase, is, it, it, it's not a question. This is a, who would ever think of doing this? Who would imagine robbing God? And their first reaction would probably be, well, it's not us. And then God says, yeah, you are robbing me. They're doing the unthinkable. They're doing the unimaginable, yet still they rebel. But you say, how have we robbed you? They're saying, how have we taken anything from you? I, I don't know what was going through their heads, but I can think, I can imagine. Well, well, God, you own everything. How could we take anything from you? Or maybe, God, well, you gave this to me. Why would I give it back to you? Or, yeah, rob you. Are you kidding? Are you, you look around here. We don't have anything. How could we rob you? We don't have anything here that we would have robbed. So they're accusing God again of making a mistake. It's another challenge to God. God answers, you've robbed in your tithes and contributions. They haven't been tithing. Now remember, they had good reasons not to tithe, didn't they? Taxes were high. No water. No crops. I mean, how can they tithe? There's no money left. There's nothing left over when, after they've paid the Persians, after they've paid the Samaritans, after they've, they've bought what little food they can buy because they can't grow it. There's no money left. You can hear them go, tithe, are you kidding me? I'm not making it as it is. And then God says this in verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me the whole nation of you. All of them are guilty. And God, the first three chapters is God is saying, I have been disciplining you because you're guilty. Now, we've talked about this before. It took a long time for this attitude to rise up. It didn't happen overnight. So it, it started gradually and it got larger. So God is saying, I've been disciplining you because you haven't honored me. You haven't even honored me in your finances. You see, they're holding back. They're holding back on God being the highest priority. They're holding back on God in their worship, in their sacrifices. 
and in their finances, their holding back has caused their situation. It's not that their situation has caused them to hold back. They're being short-sighted here. God is saying, the reason you're in this position is because you have put me on the back burner. The reason you have no money, the reason you have no crops, the reason you're under oppression is because you keep on kicking me to the curb. And they're looking at the moment and going, well, wait a minute. Don't you understand the situation that we're in? God says, yes, I understand the situation. Don't you understand how you got there? It's an incredible moment. This is why, this is why Israel's suffering. They claim that God is not just. They've been withholding from God what is due him. And the third infraction is that they claim that God is not just. Look at this in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me. These are, and what, what the phrasing here is, your words have been angry. Your words have been animated. They've been harsh against God, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And again, they challenge God. Where have we been harsh? You want to see harsh? We're living harsh right now. So God says, you have said, it is vain to serve God. It's futile. It's no good. There's no purpose in serving God. You say, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? What they're saying is, serving God, we're not getting anything from it. We're putting all this time, we did all that, we did everything you told us to do, and we didn't get what we wanted. And so what they're saying is, God, you're not meeting our expectations. You see how dangerous it is to, to have expectations of God? These people are in all this trouble because, because of this attitude they have. It's not worth putting the work in. We're not getting the return. As if the tithing and, and the effort and the serving and everything was some kind of investment that they were going to get a return upon. God calls them to serve. God calls them to give. God calls them to dedicate and commit themselves to him because they love him, not because he's going to do something for them. And because they have this attitude and they're not getting the expected return on it, they're saying, it's not doing any good, we're going to do, do something else. We'll go worship some other god. Or maybe we won't worship anyone at all. And the result, verse 15, and now we call the arrogant blessed. It means that they call the arrogant happy, the arrogant, the, the prideful look like they're filled with joy, look like they're filled with peace. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Wicked people are rebelling against God, they're saying, and nothing happens to them. So why don't we rebel? You're not doing anything to them. Why would you do anything to us? In other words, they, they look at the wicked people and they're envious of them. They've got all this stuff. Probably looking at the Persians. They've got money. They've got the good clothes. They've got the great houses. I want some of that. Why worship God if evil people are doing better than we are? There's no 
justice in God. See, that accusation maybe is the worst of all of them because that hits at God's holiness. That hits at God's holiness. So, the first infraction, they're disobedient. Second infraction, they're, they're withholding that which is due God. And the third infraction, is there's, there's, they claim that God's not just. This is a bad situation. I mean, if you've been reading the Old Testament, by the time you get to Malachi, you know there's big trouble here. That there's going to be a price to pay. The people have turned so far from God that they question whether or not it's worth their while to worship Him at all, and they envy the people of the world. See, th th this is why Israel is suffering. Yes, the economy's bad, taxes are high, uh, there's, there's a, a drought, there's uh, near famine conditions, they're, they're oppressed by the, the Samaritans and by uh, the Persians. And so there's this incredibly dark cloud that hangs over, in particular this chapter. And right in the middle of all this, right in the middle of all the darkness, I mean, it's so much like God, isn't it? There's this incredible promise that he gives them. And that starts back up in verse 10. So look at this. He says, bring the tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. He says, bring the tide into the storehouse and you'll have food, okay? And thereby put me to the test. This is the only time in Scripture that we are encouraged to test God. He said, try this out. See if I'm not faithful. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven. Now, this is, this is great imagery. I love it okay? Um, but it, it, was, it even had more meaning to the Jews, uh, because the Jews believed that the heavens were filled with waters, and that there were barriers in the heavens, they called them windows, that if those barriers would open, that the waters would come flowing out of heaven. God says, put me to the test, bring the tithe into the storehouse, and I'll bring the rain. I'll bring that that you need to grow the crops that you need to be able to sustain yourself. So, he says, I'll, I'll open the windows of heaven for you and pour down. I'll empty out the storehouses of heaven for you a blessing until there is no more need. Don't mistake this. This is not an easy way to get money from God. Okay? Because verse 10 has to be taken in conjunction with verse 7. It's not just the tithe. It's not just honoring God in the finances, but they have to turn back to God as well. They have to give him what is due financially, but they have to do it spiritually as well. All the giving in the world will not help someone who is not in a right relationship with their Father in heaven. So some people will look at this and, I, you know, I've talked through these passages before, and I'll get, well, John, tithing is for the Old Testament. Why are you telling us about it? And why do you make it sound like if you tithe, God's going to give you a bunch of money? Okay? Uh, tithing is for the Old Testament. And you know what? There are some pretty strict rules on tithing in the Old Testament. If you were to add up the two tithes that they took per year uh, and the various 
sacrifices they had to make and the gifts that they were encouraged to give, it really works out to about 43, 44% of everything that they had. Okay, so, and, 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 and again, people go, oh, no, no, that doesn't, we're under the new covenant, that doesn't help. Okay, well, you take a look at the book of Acts, and they brought everything. <laughs> they brought everything. They had everything in common. Okay, but, but, Jesus is actually a bit more precise on tithing than even the book of Acts is. If you take and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 23, Watch this. Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus is having another encounter with the scribes and the Pharisees. They're butting heads with each other again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Now, if, if you know what the, the, the scribes and Pharisees were doing, I mean, they were meticulous about their tithe. You know, if they had a bunch of herbs, little seeds back then, they would count the number of seeds we have and then count out 10% of those seeds and, seeds and give them as a tithe. They were very meticulous about this. So Jesus is saying, yeah, you're pretty good at doing that tithing things, but you've kind of ignored some of the basic elements of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And then he says this, these you ought to have done. These you ought to have done. The these refers to the tithe. Jesus Christ says you should be tithing. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And again, the tithing comes from the relationship we have with our Father. We need to be in right relationship with Him if the tithe is going to be meaningful. So this is a call to honor God in our finances. When we honor him in our finances, when we honor him in every part of our lives, things begin to happen. Now, we're going to see what begins to happen. This is in the Jewish context of Malachi. So, for the Jews it meant the rains would come. Verse 11, and furthermore, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. There'll be no pests to come and take your crops away. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. The vines will grow the fruit, says the Lord of hopes. Then, and then on top of it all, then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Again, if you think about their situation, God says, put me in right relationship with you. Give me the things that are due me, and I will pour out heaven, and you will be blessed mightily, and this oppression that you have been undergoing for your entire history will be lifted, and other lands will call you blessed. It's a solution to all their problems. Treating God the way he's supposed to be treated in every area of their lives. So up until this point, God has been clear what they've been doing wrong. He's delineated it. He's given them a promise and that if they repent and return to him, that he'll bless them in abundance. So how do they respond to this? Well, there, there are two responses. And the first response is right there in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Those who had a reverential fear of God, something happens to them, their ears perk up, and they start talking to each other, going, what, what, what are we going to do about this? You know, and, and they're, what they're probably saying to each other is, 
This is God speaking through Malachi. We need to listen to this. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. Now, it's not like the Lord wasn't listening before. It's not like look, look, he got busy in heaven doing something. I was like, oh, what did you just say? This is the Lord doing what he does when people turn to him and call out for help and repent from their sins. And it says, and a book of remembrance was written before him. God doesn't need a book. God doesn't need the scroll. But what Malachi is trying to emphasize here is that as God begins to hear his people and respond to him, there is a permanent nature to his response because he's faithful, because he's true. A book of remembrance was written before him, before God, of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name, of those who give him his due, who feared the Lord and esteemed his name, and all this stuff goes hand in hand with each other. It is a two-way relationship. They do what they're supposed to do, and God says this in verse 17. They, those people that do this, shall be mine says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve them. And what he's saying right here is, you know, these people are saying that there's no difference between us and the wicked. That they seem to be doing fairly well. And now we're kind of pointing towards the end times. God said there's going to come a day when you see the difference between you and the wicked. There'll come a day when that distinction becomes very clear to you. And you need to be looking towards that day, not your current situation. So that's the response of those who fear God. Then we have the response of those who do not fear him, do not esteem his name. And that starts in in verse 1 of chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will, be, it will leave them neither root nor branch. He says, those people that you admire, those people that look like they're doing so well, they're going to burn up. When you see that, you'll understand But for the people who reject them, they're going to be the victims of this. So we've seen these these three infractions. They haven't been obedient to the law. They've withheld from God what is due him. And they've claimed that God is not a God of justice. We've seen this promise. See, and there's the light in the middle of all this. If they repent, he'll bless them in abundance. Then we've seen the two responses. The blessings on those who repent and the discipline, the judgment, the condemnation on those who don't. This is God's nature. But there's a further blessing here for those who return to the Father. Starting in verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. This had to have been an emotional moment for those who believed in God because they were in a dark hour. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. And they get this image of dawn on the horizon, of light on the horizon. And as the sun comes up, they're bathed in the warmth of the presence of God. 
And that presence has healing in its wings. These people are hurt. They're wounded. They've struggled. They've struggled with doubts. They've struggled with questions that have no answers. And all of a sudden, they're engulfed by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that heals them. Watch this. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet, you who are faithful, on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. He says, these are the things that are going to happen to those who repent and come to me. And it doesn't stop there, because in verse 4 he says, do these things. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah. See, we're at the end of the Old Testament. God's people once again are falling away from him. And once again, God's patience and God's mercy rises to the surface and he says, repent. Repent. Repent because I'm sending an Elijah. It's going to be John the Baptist. We know that. I'm sending an Elijah. And, and before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, the incarnation, the coming of God in the flesh to walk among his people and sacrifice himself so that those who repent will have eternal healing. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to the fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. If you don't do what God says, condemnation. So, the people of Malachi's time have these promises of blessing, healing, abundance. For them, for them it meant that the rain would come, that they'd have crops, for them, it meant that as they honored God in their finances, that, that God would meet their immediate needs. You know, the, 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 the promises are similar to us, but don't, don't mistake this for some way of getting what you want from God. If I do this, God will do that, okay? Because God intends to heal us, brothers and sisters. We saw that with the dawn of the Messiah, with the rising of the sun. Healing comes with it. The healing that they're talking about is not the healing of our physical needs. We know that God is not always going to heal our physical needs. Somebody say amen. amen. There are good people out there that haven't been healed. One of them is the Apostle Paul. So, you know, I hear this. Oh, you didn't get healed. Maybe you didn't have enough faith. Maybe you didn't say the, the right words. Maybe you didn't pray at the right time and everything. Paul didn't get healed. It's Paul. I got a thorn in the side. I prayed three times for God to take it away. He didn't take it away. Did Paul not get the words right? Did Paul not have enough faith? Give me a break. But God promises healing to us. 
And the healing that he promises, brothers and sisters, the abundance of blessing that he promises us is an eternal healing and an eternal blessing. The blessing of being with him forever. The blessing of being healed from every sin we've ever committed. The blessing of being healed from the consequences of that sin. Each one of us who call upon his name, each one of us who recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be healed and perfected and brought into glory in his presence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your promises that are good and true. We thank you, Lord, that you don't play tricks on us. Thank you, Lord, you don't dangle promises in our faces and then leave it up to us to fulfill them. We thank you that you are the fulfillment, Father. We thank you that you are the blessing. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would impress that upon us, Lord that we might make you the highest priority in our lives, in our finances, in our prayers, in our serving, Father, in every facet of our lives, that we might receive the blessing of abundance that you promise us. In Jesus' name we pray.